The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we're going to finish up chapter 2, probably the most challenging section to interpret and understand, verses 14 through 26 in chapter 2. And we're going to wrap it up, specifically looking at verses 24, 25, and 26. And if you have not been with us up to this point, uh, the book of James, one of the first books written in the New Testament, very well could be the first book. Uh, James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He rose, he didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was on earth, but then when Jesus died and rose again, he appeared to James' brother, and then James believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then James rose to prominence as probably the key leader in the early church of Jerusalem, uh, a church that just exploded in terms of growth and numbers to thousands of people. And uh, James led, along with Peter and John and the other apostles, that early church. And then that early church was devastated by uh, famine and persecution. You can read that in the book of Acts. And then a lot of the, most of the believers at the time were Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. And they spread out from Jerusalem all over and even out of the area of Palestine. And many of these believers who were around at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection believed the promise that Jesus was going to come back soon. And now 15 years plus has gone by and they're wondering, wow, Jesus hasn't come back yet. I thought it was going to be soon. Um, And they were living and starting other churches outside the area of Palestine. And they were getting dug into life here on earth and the, the wait seemed long that Jesus wasn't returning and some of the believers or at least professing believers began to come some become lethargic and apathetic and lost some of that zeal that you have when you first become a believer and got into the routine of life and perfunctory duties of religion and James heard about that and so he was compelled by the Spirit of God to write this short letter to give him a shot in the arm to remind them of what they were like when they first got saved, when Christ first rose from the dead, and that passion that they had and that they lived with, and that zeal that was exemplified by action in accordance with their faith, they've lost some of that. And so James wants to stir it up again, and so this is his attempt to do so. And so that finds us in the middle of James chapter 2, 14 through 26. One of the things that James was hearing, that these believers, there were a lot of problems going on in the early church. Actually, there's a lot of problems that go on in any church. And so James is addressing these problems one by one. And one of the things that discouraged James was a lot of these professing Christians uh, were just doing a lot of talking but weren't living out their faith by, work, by way of actions and works, uh, godly works, primarily works of charity, works of kindness, works of love and mercy. Paul talks about works in a different way than James does, and that's very important to understand the distinction between what James is talking about and Paul. When Paul talks about works, he's usually talking about bad works or legalistic works, works that people were trying to do in order to get saved and earn God's favor, works of the law, Paul called them, like dietary regulations, circumcision, the works of the law, dietary laws. That's different than the works James is talking about. James is not talking about the works of the law. He's talking about works of obedience to God and works of love and service towards other people, works of mercy, good deeds, kindness towards other people that he's already talked about, especially in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, helping widows, helping orphans, just helping other people that are in need, giving of yourself, serving others. So those are very different works than what Paul talked about. Uh, So there's a very important distinction And when you have that in mind, then you know, oh, okay, Paul and James do not conflict with one another at all. Uh, So other things just to bring us up to speed that we have talked about in the book of James up to this point uh, in this section. If you look at verse 14, I said that James 2, 14 and 16 is a unit. It all goes together. And his theme question that he's trying to answer as he's talking to these professing Christians, not all of them are believers. Only God knows the heart, and that's true in every age, in every church. Jesus said it. There will always be weeds among the wheat. We as humans don't know the hearts of people. But we can see the fruit of people's lives. 
And godly people will produce godly fruit. That is his theme. And there were actually some professing believers saying, no, you don't need to do good works. You don't need to have any fruit in your life that's godly. Just have a profession of faith. And James says, no, that is absurd. That is ridiculous. And that's what he says in James 2.14. Look at it. He said, what use is it, my brethren? What use is it, Christians? If a man says he has faith, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But he has no works. What he's talking about, he has no godly manifestations in his works, his attitudes, his thought life, his communication. These are works of service, works of love, works of mercy that characterize a Christian that is actually modeled after the Master Jesus Himself who was incarnate godly works by way of love and mercy towards other people. And James says that's that's just a no-brainer. It is natural. It should be, well, it's supernatural, but it should be natural for a Christian to produce good works in their life because that's why God saves us. One of the reasons He saves us is to produce good works in our life on His behalf. And so James says in verse 14, uh, boy, if somebody says they're a Christian but they don't have any good works, what use is that? That's a rhetorical question. What good is it? point is, uh, it's no good at all. As a matter of fact, can that kind of faith save him? The answer is no, absolutely not. You can't just profess to believe in Jesus. You have to have a changed life. It is God who makes a changed life. It is the Spirit of God who works in that person that brings forth that changed life and those works. But the point is, if you're really a Christian, there will be good works attending your life. That's all there is to it. So in other words, you should be able to make a distinction between an unbeliever and a believer by observing them and how they act and behave and talk. It's not that hard. Because everybody produces fruit, either good fruit or bad fruit. And James goes on to validate or buttress his argument by using two of the greatest Old Testament examples that he could come up with of people who were people known for their faith, but also exemplified godly works by virtue of their behavior. And it was Abraham and Rahab. And so last week we looked at how James said, uh, if you're truly a believer, you will have good works in your life. After all, look at the greatest man of faith in the history of the world was Abraham. He is the quintessential man of faith. And he wasn't just a man of faith. He was also characterized by being a man of godly works. And then James highlighted the greatest, one of the greatest amazing works of obedience that Abraham did. It wasn't works of the law. It wasn't dietary works trying to get saved. It wasn't circumcision. It was obedience to a command given by God through supernatural revelation to execute or kill or sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar in obedience to God. And so he began to implement that work out of obedience because he trusted and believed in God. And he was commended for that as a great act of obedience. Exemplary works going along, attending his faith, proving, showing to the world that indeed he was a true believer. So his works validated his faith. His works on the outside validated his faith on the inside, because saving faith is invisible, it's invisible, and the only way we can see it is the fruit of saving faith. And it comes out in people's actions. And so now he's going to go on to a second illustration of one of the greatest uh, believers and saints of all time that James could think of, and that was, at least in the history of the Jewish people, they wrote a lot about this lady, and she's introduced in our passage here. So let's go ahead and look at it, verses 24 to 26, after he talks about Abraham as an incredibly godly man of good works that attended his faith. Here's another illustration, and that's Rahab. He says, verse 24, you see that a man, or really a believer, could be a man or a woman or a child, anthropos, a person, a believing person. You see that a, a believer is vindicated by their works. The word translated as justified, we talked about this and defined it. The best translation in this context is vindicated or literally shown to be righteous. You see that a man is shown to be righteous, proven to be righteous by their good works and not by faith alone. Very important. That word justified in verse 24 and also in verse 21 where it says, Was not Abraham our father justified? We said the better translation in this verse is, was not Abraham our father vindicated or shown to be righteous? It's the exact same word used in 1 Timothy 3.16 where it says that Jesus was vindicated by virtue of his believer. He wasn't saved. Jesus wasn't saved. He didn't need to be saved. He's vindicated. Outwardly manifest and shown to be righteous. It's the exact same word. 
By the way, 44 times in the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint is a Greek translation of the entire Old Testament. And by the way, when the Apostle Paul wrote his epistles, and when Jesus preached and his apostles wrote down the four Gospels, many times the authors of the New Testament quote from the Old Testament. And usually when they quote the Old Testament, they are not quoting the Hebrew Old Testament. They are quoting the Greek Septuagint, which was compiled over the course of two to three hundred years B.C. The Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the most frequently quoted Old Testament source in the New Testament. And 44 times in the Greek Septuagint, the word justified, dikaiao, this word that we see in 21 and 24, 44 times that exact same word is translated as vindicated or shown to be righteous. And it is not used the way Paul uses it to mean justified. So it's not just 1 Timothy 3.16 in the Bible that uses that word that way. 44 examples in the Old Testament use it the same way that I am saying it should be translated. So going back with that, verse 24, you see that a man is not vindicated or shown to be right, uh, righteous by his works, and, or by his works, sorry, and not by faith alone. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also vindicated or shown to be righteous by her works? When? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And then he concludes with this. For just as the body, the human body, without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So let's go ahead and look at our outline there. And again, I just came up with three points to summarize these great truths. And the title I put there is that Rahab's faith worked. She had true faith. And because she had true saving faith, it was clear in her life by virtue of her words and her actions. And we're going to see that in James, but also in Hebrews and in the Old Testament book where she appears. But let's go to that first point that I make there regarding Rahab's faith that worked. And that's a theological truth. And that's number one, the theological foundation. The theological premise here for James by which everything else is built. We are, if you're a Christian, you're a theologian whether you like it or not. If you're a Christian, you should be a theologian whether you can spell theologian or not. Theology. Truths about God that come from the Bible. That's all theology is. Truths from God that are the foundation of everything we think and as a result how we conduct our life. So there's a theological foundation to James's entire argument from 14 to 26. And it is this. All true believers will produce good works. All true believers will produce good works, godly works, works of service, works of charity, love towards other, basic obedience to God. That's what I'm talking about. We are not talking about legalism. We're talking about good works that please God, that, that please God and serve others. If you're a Christian, you will be producing good works in your life, whether you realize it or not. If you're truly a believer... Primarily, that's going to happen through the Spirit of God working in you. And that's verse uh, 24 there, where he says, You see that a man is shown to be righteous by works and not by faith alone. All true believers will produce good works. And I put some verses down there for you uh, that validate this in the New Testament. Again, we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about works righteousness. Every false religion in the world believes you can earn favor with God by doing good works. Legalistic works, religious works, uh, or just basically how many old ladies you walk across the street during your lifetime, earning brownie points for God. That's not what the Bible's talking about. You can't earn favor with God by human works. There's only one work that earned the favor of God, and that was the work of Jesus Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. That's the one work that pleased God and appeased God the Father. But once you become a Christian, once you get saved, God puts His Holy Spirit in you and in me. And from that point on, the Spirit of God is working in us to produce godly behavior and godly works. And I do want us to look at that great truth in Philippians. So if you flip back in your Bible and some of the epistles of Paul here, go back to Philippians. A few books back, just before Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul believed that Christians should be doing good works too. That's not just James. 
all over the place. Every time Paul gives a command, he's commanding a Christian to do good works, isn't he? And you go through Paul's epistles and he's got dozens and dozens and dozens of imperatives or commands commanding Christians to do good works. So James and Paul complement one another perfectly. They're in perfect harmony. And here James or here the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two talks about how this supernatural dynamic works of on the one hand, God is doing the works. And on the other hand, the human Christian is responsible for doing the good works. And wow, how is that possible? I'm supposed to do the good works, but I can't do the good works without God helping me do the good works. How does that work? And I say, I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. It's the work of God. I just believe it because that's what the Bible teaches. And Paul kind of explains it here to the best of his ability with the limitations of our finite sinful minds. And I put the passage there, uh, Philippians 2, 13 and, or 12 and 13, and he says this, So then, my beloved, he's talking to the Philippian church where he pastored that church, he founded that church. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, they were a good church. They were a pleasure for Paul to shepherd and pastor that church, be an elder there. Uh, you were characterized by always obeying, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence you even obeyed. Here's his command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. I told you earlier that one of my hobbies when I was in college as a new Christian was to talk to Mormon missionaries. I just, I loved it. Some people are afraid of them and they run away. I said, come on in. And I did that in college. And routinely, I think just about every single time I talked to a Mormon missionary, they would use this verse out of King James. Uh, Philippians 2, 12, this portion, and they would say, well, you, we do need to do good works to earn our salvation. I'd say, um, I don't think so. And they'd say, yeah, you do. It's even in the Bible. I'd say, where? And then they'd, and I was a young Christian, and they pointed to this verse. Well, right here, Paul says, work out your salvation. There it is. So you need to do good works to earn your salvation. And so what they're doing is misinterpreting this verse, misusing it, pulling it out of context. Uh, they were saying that you do good works to get saved. Paul isn't saying that. Paul is saying that doing good works is part of the sanctification process after you got saved. Only a Christian can do good works. So you've got to keep the verse in context. So this is a command to Christians. This is not a command to unbelievers. This is a command to Christians who are already saved and their salvation is already secure. And he says, work out your salvation or keep on working out your salvation. Literally what he's saying is put into practice in every area of life for the rest of your life the salvation that God gave you the moment you believed in Him and in the Gospel. So for me, when I got saved at age 19, boom, I got saved. And then God's expectation for me for the rest of my life was that I continue to work out, implement that salvation He gave me in every area of my life through the process of sanctification until I die or He takes me up in glory. So it's the difference between justification and sanctification. Every Christian is called to live a godly life, to work out their salvation through the sanctification process. And how do we do that? How do we work out our salvation? Basically, it's just saying act like a Christian. Be obedient. Listen to God's Word. Do good works because you're already saved. You have the potential to. You have the ability to. You have the resources to. And the key is in verse 13. Keep on working out your salvation as a Christian with fear, fear before God, knowing we are totally dependent upon Him for all things. We can't work out our salvation. We can't do good works without God's help and His resources, right? can't do it in our own strength. That is futile. So keep on working out your salvation with fear before God and trembling. He is your Savior. He is your judge. Well, how do we do that, Paul? Wow. Verse 13. Well, here's how you do it. Didn't you know that it is God who is at work in you? Isn't that amazing? We can work because God was already doing the work. God is present tense at work already in you, in me. If you're a Christian, God is working in you. And He's doing it through the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Well, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit's inside of me. Well, He is. And He is working in you. He's doing all kinds of work. He's either teaching you all the time. There are times He convicts you and me. There are times He uh, comforts us. There are times He leads us. There are times He illuminates our understanding to Scripture. The Holy Spirit is always working in the believer. And that is why we have the ability to actually do good works that please God. The Christian can do works that please God. And I've said this before, where every once in a while you'll hear a preacher say, all of our works are like filthy rags. And God spits them out and vomits them all over the place. No, no, not all of our works. There are works that we do that actually please God. And those are the works that we do in obedience to Him through the Spirit of God who's working in us. In the words of James, 
our faith was working with our works. That's what's going on here. It's the Spirit of God is working with our faith to produce godly works. For it is God who is at work in you, Christian, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, God can be pleased by our works. That's an act of worship that is pleasing to Him when we do things that are obedient to Him and in service to others. We are slaves of Christ. We live for Him. All true believers will produce good works. You can read those, the other passage on your own. I, did want to, I want to point out two passages, or really just verses. Look at Matthew 7, and then we're going to go to John chapter 3. Matthew 7. James didn't invent this truth that all true believers will have good works in their life. It was the teaching of Jesus. It was the teaching of God since the beginning. But Jesus was very specific on this time and time again. Just one verse. Matthew 7, verse 21. At Judgment Day, Jesus, as the judge, is going to judge every person. He's going to judge every human soul. And part of the judgment is going to be He's going to assess all of our works. He's going to assess more than that, but part of it is He's going to assess our works. And in Matthew seven twenty one, this is a sobering statement that Jesus made. Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord. See, not everyone with just a profession is going to get into heaven. You can't just say, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and boom, you're in. Demons believe in God. Not good enough. So Jesus taught this. Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Okay, so I I want you to contrast two words in this verse. First word is says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, here's the contrast, he who does. There it is. Says and does. They are contrasted. You can't just have faith that has no works. If you have true saving faith, it will always produce good works through the Spirit of God who is working in us. But he who does the will of God, of the will of my Father who is in heaven. So good works will characterize a true born again believer. And then go to John chapter 3. And again, here's John the Apostle teaching on the same truth, reiterates the same truth. These very words could be out of the mouth of Jesus. And John wrote it down. One thing Jesus said in John 3, 36. Look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. See, salvation is by grace through faith, right? He who believes in the Son. That means believes the right thing about Jesus. Who He is, what He did, why He did what He did, and how it affects you. You've got to believe the right thing about Jesus. In other words, we would say, He who believes in the Gospel has eternal life. He who believes in the Gospel of Christ can be saved. That's what that means. He who believes. Then again, I want you to contrast two words, two verbs again in this verse. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but, contrast, he who does not obey, see that? Believes, obedience. Side by side, contrasted, related, inseparable. Which is consistent with James, consistent with Paul. But the one who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, present tense, is continually pressing down on Him. You know what? If you are not a Christian this morning, the wrath of God is hounding you and pressing you down. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, and you feel guilt before the Creator of the universe, that's actually a good thing. Because it means your conscience hasn't been seared. And so desensitized from sin that you can't respond to God anymore. So a very important verse. But notice how obedience is intrinsically bound up in true saving faith, belief. So go back to James. James was just reiterating the teaching of Jesus. And that is the simple theological truth that all true believers will produce good works. And that's the point of verse 24. Let's go on to the next one. Point number two, the historical situation. So now to illustrate this theological truth, he gives a helpful illustration. And illustrations are helpful because we can relate to them. All this theological, theoretical truth, it's nice to have a picture of it, isn't it? A real life situation and scenario. So for that, he talks about Uh, His illustration is Rahab. I want you to have a finger. Uh, We're going to go back to Joshua 2 in the Old Testament. We have to read that because that's the foundation. But I'll read what James says first in verse 25. In the same way, in the same way as Abraham, just as Abraham was a man of faith who showed that he was 
truly saved by virtue of his godly works, so also Rahab did the same thing. She was a woman of faith, but godly works issued from her life. Point being, every believer will have good works, and Rahab is a perfect example of that. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? Notice her last name. Boy, how would you like that for a last name? Rahab the harlot. It's like, James, man, she got saved from that lifestyle. Why are you doing that? Why are you defaming her like that? Rahab the harlot. That was, that was her name. When that was her profession, back in Joshua, such a part of our identity and her reputation. It's also a good reminder for us that she was a pathetic, undeserving sinner that God saved in His grace and mercy, and He's done that for all of us. We could have the same disparaging moniker after our first name, if we were honest, every single one of us. Cliff the blank, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. But you've got your own. Maybe you've got many. A hyphenated compound name with all kinds of terrible sins. Boy, wouldn't that be ugly. Saved by the grace of God. We're going to see that in her life. And you know, you can't get any more despicable than the sin of prostitution, really. Blatant, defiling immorality that warranted the death penalty in the Old Testament. This woman should have been executed on the spot before a holy God in light of what His Word requires. And yet, for some reason, she got away with her life. She didn't get executed. And we're going to see that. And that speaks of the, the, the mercy and the grace of God. Some people perceive God of the Old Testament as this very harsh and mean and angry unforgiving policeman of heaven who just wants to hit everybody over the head for all of their faults. That is a twisted, distorted, perverted, blasphemous view of the God of the Bible and the true God of the universe. Because he, He's a gracious God. Let's go ahead and look at that story in Joshua, in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 2. So, to bring you up to speed here in the context, uh, Moses was the leader of about almost 2 million of these Jews who have been wandering around in the desert in circle for 40, circles for 40 years. Did you know that it should have only taken about three months to get from Egypt to the Promised Land? Three months. And they actually they spent 40 years in the desert. And the reason they were in the desert for 40 years, that was a, a sentence from God. They were being punished because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. That was the punishment. Well, what was unbelieving? Well, in Numbers 13, you can read it on your own. Numbers 13, in the days of Moses, Moses was about to enter the promised land. And so Moses chooses 12 men to go be messengers in the land. And he tells these 12 guys, go check it out. See what it's like. Check out the city. Check out their fortresses. Check out the walls around the city. Uh, check out their army. Check out the land. Get some of the food. Bring it back. See if it is the promised land that God said it was. Look at our enemies. Assess them. Do some reconnaissance. Come back. Bring us a report before we go in and take the promised land. And then the 12 spies come back and 10 of them gave a lousy report saying, wow, it was beautiful over there. And man, they got some great grapes. They were delicious. And here's a couple. But man, these, there were a lot of people and they were scary and they were big, mean and ugly and they were dangerous and they were so big they looked like giants and we looked like grasshoppers and there's no way we can go in there and defeat them. And then, boy, what, and then they just stirred up ten guys, ten doubting, unbelieving, deceived men ended up influencing Hundreds of thousands of Jews who were with Moses before they went into the promised land. And as a result, the entire congregation was poisoned by their wrong thinking. The entire congregation. Can you imagine that? Million, almost two million Jews heard a negative report. It says they heard a negative report. Their faith was undermined. That's why Paul says in the New Testament, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. A little poison can mess everything up. I, I hate negative comments and negative feedback. I just, I do. And I'm not saying that because it's a strength of mine. <laughs> but anyway, here's a good example of uh, the damage that it can do when you undermine faith and the potential of what God can do. And so the entire congregation got poisoned to the fact, to the point where they started, they doubted Moses as their leader. And as a result, they doubted that God could pull off a miracle and bring them into the land successfully. And they actually wanted to execute and kill Joshua and Moses and Aaron. God became infuriated and He wanted to wipe everybody out. I'm going to snuff them all out except for Moses, 
Joshua and Caleb and whoever else was faithful. And just leave a faithful few. And then Moses said, no, God, you can't do that. You already promised and said you're going to save these people. And Moses interceded. He prayed for those people. He was the high priest. God answered Moses' prayer. He spared them at that time. But the consequence of their disobedience was, fine. You don't believe we can go in the land? You guys, you aren't going in the land. You're going to stay out here in the desert until you drop dead. And then your children will be allowed to go into the promised land. So that's why they ended up for 40 years in the desert. From the time of those messengers being sent into the promised land. So now we go to Joshua chapter 2. Moses is dead 40 years later. They're at the border on the Jordan River ready to go into the promised land. And guess what Joshua does? He gets a couple more spies to send them for more reconnaissance. And you can imagine what the people are thinking. Well, oh no, this is, my, this is not going to be pretty. That's how my parents and grandparents died. They were disbelieving. This is going to be ugly. Yikes! That's what could have happened. And that's why when you read Joshua... So let, now let's go to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, maybe through God telling him, or maybe just being a wise leader, knowing, okay, I'm going to send two spies this time, because after all, that's all we needed, because the only two guys that were obedient and had faith in God were Joshua and Caleb. We didn't need the other ten knuckleheads. We'll just go with two. And we'll send these two guys in. And as a matter of fact, we aren't going to tell anybody. These million Jews around, they don't even need to know we're sending spies this time. Moses, man, you made a mistake. You told everybody last time. You put it all, posted it all over the walls. Created all this expectation. So let's look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, sent two men as spies secretly. Secretly. He sent them secretly. Who was the secret kept from? I believe the secret was kept from all the other Jewish people in the community of Joshua. The only people that knew were Joshua and probably his wife, because wives know everything, and the two spies. And a very small circle of people. About the plan. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men uh, uh, spies, or literally messengers. Well, actually, scouts is one translation, which is even better. They didn't have a message. Uh, sent two spies, scouts, secretly from Shittim, where they were on the side of the Jordan. Uh, they're probably 30 miles away from Jericho, maybe a little less. And here is their command. Go, view the land, especially Jericho. That's one of the first cities that you encounter as you go across the Jordan River. And at that time, it was a fortified city. It was key to conquering the entire area of the promised land. It was right in the middle, separating north and south, surrounded by two massive, huge walls. These walls were so tall and so thick, they had people living on top of the wall. Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot. So they go, they obey. These two guys, probably dressed up secretly, went across the river, found Jericho, came to the huge, massive wall, somehow got through the city gates, First stop. Oh, here we are. We're already at Jericho. Oh, here's this huge, massive wall of fortification. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot. And so, well, how'd they get into that house? Well, the harlot or the prostitutes, they had houses and they, they welcomed every man they saw, right? So it was very accommodating, very easy to get in there. This is a shady place. Full of sin, compromise, bunch of no good characters. So this was an easy opportunity for them to get lodging somewhere and to hide out among the scum of the earth. And no doubt, we know that the spies probably went around the city, checked things out, and they got discovered. People discovered them and noticed, hey, uh, they look Jewish or Israelitish. Or maybe they heard their accent or the clothes that they were wearing. Oh, you can't fool us. We know who you are. So they were spotted. So their secret wasn't kept from uh, the Canaanites in the city where, in which they lived there in Jericho. But they went into the house of uh, Rahab the harlot or prostitute, and they lodged there. They stayed at her house. Verse 2 says, and it was told the king of Jericho saying, hey, behold, check this out. Men from the sons of Israel. Hey, two guys. We spotted two guys today. They were sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. We even know what they're doing. So their plan was found out. Verse 3, the king of Jericho. By the way, the entire area of Palestine was broken up into many different city-states. All kinds of independent kings re uh, reigning over their little kingdoms and that entire territory. So here's one little king over his little corner of a kingdom called Jericho, they told the king what's going on. And the king found out it was at Rahab's house. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house for they have come to search out the land. Notice how the king just doesn't send soldiers in there. He honored her privacy, which they did in that culture. Verse 4, 
You're supposed to obey the king or the monarch. If you don't, your life is on the line. Your head is on the line. She didn't. Stupid? No. Courageous? Yes. Verse 4. But the woman. But, contrast, she didn't obey the king. The woman, instead of doing what the king said and bringing the spies out to be arrested and probably executed for being spies, verse 4 says the woman Rahab took the two men and hid them. And she said, yes, the men came to me. Now, okay, she's even telling the truth. Yes, two guys, they did come to me. So far, so good, Rahab. Yes, the men did come to me, but I did not know where they came from. Liar. Oh, she did. She told a lie. She's being deceitful. Verse 5. And it came about when I was, when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out and left my place. I do not know where the men went. Oh, another lie and another lie. Who go? Run away. Pursue them quickly. Out into the city, for you will overtake them. They're not too far away. Good luck. Lie, 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 lie. Verse 6. But she had brought them up on the roof. See, but. She, she didn't send them away. She did know where they were. And when she heard the king wanted them, she hid them. And she took them upstairs, apparently on the roof, and there was a whole bunch of flax drying on top of the roof. Flax they used to make clothes and other things. And flax was, you pulled it, you harvested it, you soaked it in water for three weeks, and then you put it out in the sun to dry for three weeks. So there's just a whole bunch of flax all over the place. And she hid the spies under the flax on top of the roof. Uh, verse 6, But she had brought them up on the roof, hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Verse 7, So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Verse 8, Now before they lay down, so these two spies are on top of the roof. They're about to go to sleep. But before they fell asleep, it says that Rahab came upstairs on the top of her house on the roof. She came up to the two spies on the roof. And here is where her, you know, I kept saying lie, 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 which is bad, bad, bad. Now there's actually some good, good, good going to happen and come from Rahab's mouth. Because did you know that even Christians, as we, we don't have good, good, good always coming out of our mouths? That might be a surprise to some of you. But Christians, we, we sin. Believers sin. Believers compromise. They shouldn't. It, it grieves God. But here is words coming out of Rahab's mouth that shows she was already a believer. She, had, she got saved at some point when she heard about the supernatural work of God and when she had access to the revelation of God and she heard about God's truth and God's Word. She believed it and as a result, God saved her and counted it to her as righteousness. She was a brand new believer. Which is a huge contrast and difference from Abraham. Recognized in James chapter 2. Because in James chapter 2, James points out the godly works of Abraham 30 years after he got saved. In contrast to Rahab, James is showing godly works she did 30 minutes after maybe she got saved. A brand new believer. There's a great contrast. Who's expected to do godly works in their life? New believers, young believers, immature believers, mature believers, old believers, seasoned believers. Every believer. And another great contrast. Abraham was a man, highly respected. She was a woman. But before God, every human is made in the image of God, right? So that's what's going on here. And so just listen to this. And you, the evidence is that God has been working in her life through her words and her actions already. Um, Verse 8, now before they lay down and went to sleep, Rahab came out up on top of her roof and she said to the men, I know, see, I know, I experientially know. I have come to the realization. I believe now. I believe, unlike all of my patriots here in the city of Jericho who didn't believe the revelation of God when they heard it. When they heard about the works of Yahweh the Lord, they rejected it, they didn't believe it, and that's why in Hebrews and a couple other passages it says that those other people were disobedient. Rahab was obedient when she responded to the truth and the revelation of the Word of God. That's what it means in those words, I know. Verse 9, And I said, uh, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord... And notice she uses the personal name of God. She didn't say Elohim, just the generic creator of the universe, or El, the most basic name of God known to even pagans. She says, I know Yahweh. That is God's personal, intimate, covenant name for His people. So already you can see, wow, something happened to Rahab. God saved her soul. 
She's a new creation. She has been changed from the inside out. There's still a lot of work to do on the outside, by the way, because she apparently still has a habit of lying, doesn't she? So she said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. Wow. Man, that's, that's right out of the book of Moses. She has access to divine revelation. She was saved through the Word of God. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. Wow! If you look at Exodus chapter 23 and also early in the book of Deuteronomy, what is she, she is echoing verbatim. A prophecy that God made to Moses and his people 40 years earlier. When God told Moses, I'm going to take you into the promised land. I am going to go before you. Have no fear. I will always be with you. I will wipe out the Canaanites before you. My, the terror of me will go before you against your enemies. And look what Rahab is saying. She's quoting virtually Exodus 23, which Moses spoke through God 40 years earlier. I know that the terror of you, of the Israelites and, and your God, has fallen on us, the Canaanites. See, that's access to supernatural revelation. That is fulfilled prophecy. And I also know that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Again, that came from the mouth of Moses 40 years before. Verse 10. For we have heard, we pagans, we Canaanites from afar, have heard the reputation of Yahweh, the reputation of what He's done for the Israelites. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea, did a miracle before you when you came out of Egypt. This is hundreds of miles away, decades before. It was renowned. It was worldwide. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, influential kings in that area to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we, pagans, Canaanites, Jerichoites, heard it, our hearts melted with fear. Everybody was scared to death. And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Except for Rahab because she got saved. She put her faith. She responded the right way. Responding in fear. For the Lord your... Wow. Here it is. Here's her great profession in verse 11. For Yahweh your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Do you know that Nebuchadnezzar virtually said the exact same thing in Daniel chapter 4 after he got saved? He called God by His personal name. And he called Him also the God in heaven. He's God over all. Rahab is saved. She's a changed woman. Verse 12, Now therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you. See, she knew she was acting in kindness and obedience on behalf of God. She knew these were the messengers of Yahweh. She was being used providentially by God to do God's work, even though she didn't do it perfectly. Because she lied. She deceived. Now, could God have still protected the two spies without Rahab lying? Absolutely. Do we have to lie to accomplish things for God? No. Lying is always a sin. Lying is always wrong. Lying is never right. And even in the case of Rahab. By the way, Rahab is uh, commended in James chapter 2 for her works. She is commended in Hebrews chapter 11 for her faith. She is never commended for being a liar. I don't know why Christians mix that up. I've literally heard Christians, I have read a commentary, I've heard theologians, I've heard pastors preach on it, that somehow Rahab, God used her lies for good. And it's okay to lie sometimes. And this couldn't have happened without her lying anyway. Yeah, it could have, because it was God's will. She didn't have to lie. And Scripture never condones her lying. Scripture never blesses her lies. So we can't resort to the relative ethics of pagans and unbelievers, and Joseph Fletcher in the 1960s. Everything bad in America seems to happen from the 1960s, including relative ethics, which a lot of the church has absorbed, saying there's a hierarchy ethics for Christians, and even it's okay sometimes for Christians to lie. When Proverbs 12.22 is pretty clear that God thinks lying is an abomination. And telling the truth is righteous. Or in Colossians, 
chapter 3, verse 9, where the Spirit of God tells Christians, do not lie. And if you're a Christian and you're going to use this example to justify it, well, it's okay to lie sometimes. You can lie in war. You can lie if your life is threatened. You can lie. My biggest challenge there, or one of them is, how do you explain that to your little kids? Okay, little kids, sometimes it's okay. Daddy says sometimes it's okay to lie. <laughs> can you imagine what the little kids are going to say? Really, Daddy? When is it okay? Because they're going to they're take that and run with it, aren't they? That's their lifestyle. Cool. So Proverbs 12.22, Colossians 3.9. could go on and on and on and on. Uh, another proverb that says uh, seven things that God hates. One of those is lying lips. Lying is wrong. Lying is evil. Rahab was not commended for lying. She's commended for her faith. She's commended for her godly works. So we go back to Joshua chapter 2. Sorry for the footnote slash digression, but very important and practical for our lives. So she asked them to make a vow. Verse 12, Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother, brothers and sisters, and all who belong to me and deliver our lives from death. Verse 14, So the two spies said to her, Our life for yours. They agreed to it. But you've got to do this. If you do not tell this business of ours to your people and to the king and turn us in, and it shall come about when Yahweh gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you, Rahab. Then she let them down by a rope from the wall, through the window, from her house, which was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall, verse 16. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you. There are rocks and places to hide over there. Be safe for a while and hide yourselves there for three days until the uh, pursuers return. Then afterwards you may go on your way. Verse 17, And the men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear unless when we come back into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free from our oath. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from this oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. And then you can read later in Joshua chapter 6, when the Israelites came into the promised land, they attacked Jericho, the walls fell down, uh, the people were in terror, the Israelites took over the city, uh, that cord was tied on that city, and they saved uh, Rahab's home and her entire family. And she got saved, she was a pagan, she was an idol worshiper, she believed in God's word, God saved her by grace through faith, transformed her, made her a new creature. She adopted the religion and the lifestyle of the Jews. So you got a pagan or a Gentile who became a Jew. Rahab became Jewish. Just like Abraham became a Jew. He was originally an idol worshiper. Not only did Rahab become a Jew and adopted the faith, she became a significant influential Jew. She married into the line of the Messiah. Can you believe that? You read Matthew, the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 that traces the genealogy of Jesus, perfect Savior, Messiah of the world and you trace the genealogy back, you run into Rahab the harlot, who's a great-great-grandmother of King David. Isn't that amazing? That is the awesome grace of God. She did not deserve to be in the genealogy of the blessed Savior Jesus. Yet by the grace of God, she was. Rahab the harlot who was saved by God. Great truth. So let's go back to James chapter 2. So that is the historical situation. Rahab's faith worked. In other words, she got saved by grace. And immediately, as a new Christian, all she wanted to do was obey God. And I think probably at a Jewish Bible study in Hebrew, a little later on, she learned and studied the Old Testament and found out that lying was wrong. And I bet she was convicted by it. Because she ended up having a tremendous reputation as a woman of God in the Jewish culture for a thousand years, if you're into reading uh, Jewish literature and the rabbis and all of their tradition, came an incredibly godly woman. So that, isn't that encouraging for us? It doesn't matter what you've done in your life, how horrible you have been, what kind of gross immorality you have in your past, 
whatever compromises you have had, how horrible you feel about yourself, that you are beyond salvaging, that is not true. Because God's grace is greater than your sin and my sin. Right? That's what Romans says. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can't out-sin the forgiveness and grace of God. So the Gospel isn't just a New Testament message. It was an Old Testament message for Rahab. Saved by grace through faith. And God saved her, transformed her, made her a new person. And as a result, she issued forth works of obedience to God and works of service to others. And by the way, if you contrast the works of Rahab in James 2 versus the works of Abraham, it's interesting because the work that Abraham is commended for is not a work of service and mercy and love to another human being. Actually, it was kind of unkind. Hey, Isaac, I'm going to kill you. Yet it is considered a work of obedience. So there are different kinds of works that we do. There are works of obedience to God and His Word. And that's what Abraham did. But there was a different kind of work that Rahab was committed for, and that was a work of service to others. What was she commended for by James? Go back to James chapter 2. Not lying. Not being a prostitute. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also shown to be righteous by God for... For doing what? For when she received or welcomed the messengers of God. She was commended. Her work was hospitality. Gracious, godly hospitality. That's what she was commended for. And Hebrews says the same thing. She was commended for being a woman of faith, welcoming the messengers from God. Hospitality. Being gracious. Not for being a deceiver. She sinned. She was forgiven by God for her sin. We've probably all sinned in this last week. And if you're a believer, that's why 1 John 1.9 says you keep on confessing your sin to God and keep on confessing your sin to God and keep on confessing. And He is faithful and just. And He will forgive all of our sins and cleanse us from all of our righteousness. That's an ongoing lifestyle for the Christian. So that's the historical situation. Rahab's faith, it worked. And then finally, number three. The universal illustration. Now, not everybody has access to the Bible. Not everybody has access to Scripture or the the stories of the Old Testament. That's special revelation. Not everybody has access immediately to special revelation. But there are universal truths that illustrate God, His character, and realities and truths about Him. And that's what this point is here as James concludes his argument in verse 26. The universal illustration validating the theological truth he just spoke about, validating the historical situation he just gave from the Old Testament that anybody can understand and relate to. It's obvious. It's a given. It's basic. This is axiomatic. This is a no-brainer. His point that he makes in verse 26. That if you are a true Christian, you will have godly works in your life. It's just like Or if you profess to be a Christian and you don't have works in your life, then your profession is false and worthless. So also, we all know in verse 26, for just as the body, everybody has a body, physical body, without the spirit is dead. What is the biblical definition of death? Physical death. It is when the spirit of God leaves you and me. When the soul leaves. The breath of God leaves. Because in the beginning, when God created the first human, He took a pile of dirt made a human body, and it says that God breathed in the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. He breathed in the breath of life, the ruach of God, which is the breath of God, which is the same word in Greek in the New Testament here, the breath of God. So a a corpse, a human body that doesn't have the breath of God, it is dead. It stinks, it is worthless, it is grotesque, it is useless. And that's an analogy of somebody who says they're a Christian and they have no godly works in their life. It is useless. It is dead. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That is a universal truth and illustration that can appeal to anybody that they can relate to and understand. Regardless of their lack of information about divine revelation in the Old Testament. So... If you ever meet a Christian who says, oh, no, I don't need good works in my life, but I'm a Christian, don't you just take him right here? Just as the body is dead. 
and useless without the Spirit of God, so also a profession of faith without works is useless before God. By the way, one more. This is just a footnote on verse 26. Have you ever heard stories or read it in a book or seen a movie or somebody told you that they died and then while they were dead on the operating table, they went to heaven and they saw the light and then they came back to earth? And we hear that all the time. Some of the best-selling books right now are those very stories. Uh, 90 minutes in hell, 45 minutes in heaven, and on and on they go. And the story is always the same. Apparently they died, and then they saw a light, and then they were floating in the sky, and they saw the paramedics and the doctors working on them, and they were dead for a minute or five minutes or a half hour or 95 minutes, whatever it is. And then they came back, and, they, and then they tell us what heaven is like, because the Bible is not sufficient apparently. But anyway... I've never believed those stories since I've been a Christian. Because something about it just mm, that doesn't sound right. And well, here's why: because they're not using a biblical net definition of death. Just because your heart stops beating doesn't mean you're dead. By the way, from God's point of view, that is not a biblical definition of death before God. If your heart stops beating, or if you stop breathing, you're not dead. According to the Bible, you are dead. When the breath of God leaves your body, that's why when Jesus was on the cross. And he said, it is finished. And the Gospels say that he breathed his last. Another uh, Gospel says that he gave up his spirit. It's the exact same thing. He gave up the breath of God. God the Father took away the animating, life-giving breath that he gives every human being that defines life. So, humanly, we can't diagnose really when somebody's dead. By just saying, oh, their heart stopped beating, they're dead. Or, oh, they're not breathing anymore, they're dead. So, what about the stories where people stop breathing or their heart stops beating and then they saw the light and then they came back? Did something happen to them? Yeah, absolutely, something did happen to them. I actually don't know what happened to them. I wasn't there. Um, but for sure, they, their heart probably stopped beating and then they probably, in their subconscious mind, were probably like having a dream. And it was a very vivid dream and then they came back out of their dream but the Spirit of God did not leave their body because how they explain it doesn't qualify and match up with what Scripture says here. Anyway, that was just a footnote to think about because don't be misled or deceived or manipulated by those stories. If it, you've got to examine everything through Scripture. I want to close with two passages. Let's look at... Uh, actually, let's just go to Galatians chapter 6. Close with this. So, how does this apply to me as a Christian? Well... Good answer to that is Galatians from Paul, who, who liked James, complimented James, and also believed in good works issuing from the life of a Christian. Don't raise your hand, but are any of you tired, exhausted? You came into church. Maybe you didn't even feel like coming to church. You just wanted to sleep in. Man, what a week. What a life. Tired, wiped out, exhausted. Man, the trials of life. Man, life is hard. I don't know if that was you today or this week. And you're a Christian. Then this verse is for you. Because God knows that. He knows life is hard, trying, weary, that we're weak. He tries to encourage us with His Word and with His Spirit. Verse 9 of Galatians 6 says, And let us, that's Christians, let us not lose heart. Don't get so weary, so faint, so burned out that you just give up. You don't have to if you're a Christian. Let us not lose heart. Specifically, let us not lose heart in doing good. That's what God's called us to do. We are His slaves. He wants us to serve Him. We're also His masterpiece. And He wants us to serve Him. So let us not lose heart in doing good. Let us not lose heart in obeying Him. Let us not lose heart in serving others, serving in the church, serving people, acts of kindness, mercy, grace, charity, sacrifice, don't lose heart. Ask God to help you, to renew your strength. Like eagles, Isaiah 40. And here's a great motivation. For in due time, in the appropriate time, at just the right time, God's perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect. For in due time, we as believers shall reap, shall harvest, shall receive the reward, the blessing for doing our good works if we do not grow weary in doing those good works to others. Wow. Verse 10. So as a result, knowing that truth, so then Christian, so then weary Christian, 
While we have opportunity, there it is, we've got to take, opportunity, take advantage of every opportunity that comes our way, big and little. Be a good steward. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. But there is a priority. Notice his priority. Do good to all people, but especially to those, or first to those who are of the household of faith. So there is a priority. Serving and meeting the needs of the saints in the local church family. It starts there. And from there, we encourage one another. We refresh one another. We fill each other up. We are trained. We are equipped. And we leave this place. And then we go out and do the same to the unbelievers in the world. And you know what? It pleases God. And His promise is He will renew your strength. And with that, let's go to the Father in prayer, thanking Him for that great promise. And also I'm going to pray uh, for our benevolence offering that we're going to close with in just a bit with a song. Father, we thank You for our time together. Thank You for the Lord's Day and just the truth that You've preserved in James through faithful saints over the years and the work of the Spirit of God for the simple reminder that if we profess to be Christians, that our lives should have been changed and can be seen through our, our words and our works. And we do that in service to You, God, and for Your glory. God, we need Your help. We need Your Holy Spirit. We need the accountability and encouragement of the saints. We need the prayers of the saints. We are weak. We do get weary. And thank You for Your promise, God, that You will sustain us. You are a great God. God, if there's anybody that doesn't know You here personally today, I pray that You would use the words of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel, the account of Rahab and how You changed her life. Because You can do the same in their life. And it only comes through confessing sin to You, Lord Jesus, casting themselves as a sinner into Your care and asking that, you'd be, that they would be forgiven because of Jesus' perfect life, His substitutionary execution on the cross, His powerful resurrection, His ascension on high, and the fact that, Lord Jesus, You reign as King of the earth today and also as the Savior of every soul who will come to You. And we just commit those people to you as well and trust you're going to do a great work in their heart. We thank you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.